welcome back to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 680. I'm Richard Jarrett. We've been away for a little while, but over in Ohio, my friend Jim McDowell. Jim, good evening. How are you doing? Uh, good evening, Rich. Uh, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to everybody listening out there. Indeed. Hopefully everybody had a very good New Year's, was safe, and is uh, ready to take on uh, 2022. Yes, Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, hope everybody had a good Christmas break, safe, and of course, given the times we live in, hopefully everybody stayed healthy and managed to enjoy it this year. We've been away for a few weeks, just recharging the batteries, so apologies that there hasn't been a show for a little while, but we intend to hit the ground running today, and we thought we'd have a little thing about uh, some of the things that we're most looking forward to this year, Jim. So we kind of hit on the idea that we'd each try and independently come up with three things that we're most looking forward to across the coming season, depending on which class, you know, any class really. So I've got three things, you've got three things, so we're going to get into that in a little while. The other bit of good news is that we've, uh, or, or thanks to Jim, I must say, we've been getting up to date with the the list of people that very kindly subscribe and help to sponsor the show and keep things going. So we're just going to quickly run through the names. Uh, we want to thank everyone who donates from PayPal. That would be Keith Kovac, Nick Sabin, Scott Saunter, Alan Fleming, Dennis Kindig, and then everyone on Patreon, Joshua Tutel, Carl Marsh, Monk, Gary Shavit, and Steve. So thank you all for throwing a little bit of money in at the show and helping us uh, keep the lights on, keep it running and keeping everything ad free. Indeed, Yeah, thank you, everybody. And of course, if anybody else would like to join that list, please do feel free. So, Jim, I haven't done this on the show up until now, but given that we're just into New Year, I'm going to rejoin an old tradition. Nice. Cracking a beer because it's late in the evening. I'm not driving anywhere or riding anywhere. So I've got a, a can of Green King. Abbott's Ale on the go to anybody that's familiar with that one. So I shall be supping along on that one as we go forward. Hopefully Jim. at some point you can find a Tenets Okay, take one for me. I that like Tenets. That can definitely be arranged, yes. Now, there's actually rather a lot of news. Jim, you lead off with the first one. Okay. Davide Brivio states that MotoGP is not an option for 2022. If he did go back, he says that he... Uh, learned a lot from F1 about the organizational level and technical management and style that he would take back with him. However, the question is, will Otmar Snaffauer be a problem for him? And that's you, Rich. You added that one in on me. I do, because I just read that today, that Aston Martin let Otmar go from the Formula One team. And he is very good at that job and what he does there. So it seems natural that if you're trying to get Alpine to go up the field, you would maybe want to move him there. And that would leave Davide the ability to come back to MotoGP in 2022. I would like to see him back. I think Suzuki needs him to come back. I don't think he necessarily isn't the guy that's turning wrenches on the bike or trying to decide which direction they're trying to go as far as development. But I think he's somehow the conduit that somehow takes whatever Juan Mir and oh my just law just blanked Rins. out Rins, Rins. thank you <laughs> just blank for some reason what they want and somehow he can relate that or gets the focus properly aligned in Japan for Japan to provide what those two guys need to be fast on the bike. I'm curious what you think of this. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think he's kind of like a linchpin is probably the word that would quite adequately describe him he kind of manages to knit together the various factions he's, he's clearly a very strong 
well, I'm going to use the term man manager. I know it's probably politically incorrect to say it in that way now, but person manager, let's say. Uh, so he's able to get everyone to sort of coalesce around a, a you know a set of goals. He did it at Yamaha as soon as Rossi came on board. Of course, he was pivotal in, in making sure that that happened. And he's certainly been pivotal, or so it would seem anyway, in Suzuki. And it's is it a coincidence that they had quite a bad year, you know, immediately that he left? That might, of course, be a complete coincidence. But he's in quite a top-heavy management structure in the Alpine F1 team. Uh, and they're the chief exec or, or whatever of, of, of Renault who own the team and the Alpine brand and has oversight on the Formula 1 team made an announcement or a statement the other day that they were looking to make changes in the management of the team. And with Otmar Schaffernauer coming onto the market, you know, you'd figure that he would be pretty high up the shopping list uh, with Alpine. So whether that might be detrimental to a number of personnel in Alpine, you know, Davide Brivio being one of them, who knows? But it would be good to see him back because he's always a, a good interviewee, apart from anything else, when he's on the telly. Yeah, I'm not sure what else to say about it. I mean, I think Alpine would do better with Otmar running the show, but who who knows? That's a, a lot more political game over there than it is here in this paddock. Okay, uh, so the next piece of news is that Claudio uh, Calabresi replaces Francesco Guidotti as team manager at Pramac. They haven't done us any favours on the pronunciation challenge there, but he uh, he's come across as had success in Moto E, so that's seen him promoted, uh, and Fonzi Nieto becomes the sports director. So I guess that's just the usual kind of shuffles and comings and goings that, that we're used to seeing through the season and the off-season, Jim. Yeah, I think so. They seemed so good last year. I mean, Primax seemed really good. I mean, is it just because they have uh, Jorge Martin? I don't know, but anybody on Ducati looks good. And I kind of, I, I only hear in my head Enzo Ferrari going, if it's not the broker, don't the fix it. And I'm <laughs> thinking, why, why are you changing anything here? Well, if, if we, it works, yeah, stay I think, with it. Um, if we recall, Gradotti has been tempted I, I wouldn't say necessarily poached although i suppose that would be the term by ktm so i guess a vacancy has been created in pramac for that reason so this this guy claudio uh, calabresi uh, has yeah. come across for that reason but yeah i mean pramac top team aren't they uh, mm-hmm. i mean martin sticks in the memory but zarko was the guy that was the championship contender for at least the first half of the season and then tailed off fairly significantly thereafter but they're a quality outfit so Guidotti has gone to KTM? Yeah, he's replaced Mike he's Leitner. Gone. So Leitner's gone there. Huh. Yeah. It's all shuffled then, isn't it, in the paddock? Yeah, it's, just, it's the usual thing, isn't it? Comings and goings, I suppose. It's what we're used to seeing and leading on to the piece of news that you got there. Yes. Fabrizio Cecchinini leaves Aprilia. He says he needed a rest and he's looking for an offer that intrigues him. Well, taking Aprilia from the back of the grid to podiums, isn't intriguing enough where are you going to go i wonder if he would not be a very good like technical delegate for moto gp you know kind of mm. yeah have him take charge of that alternative fuel that they got going on good shout yeah i mean somebody with recent shop floor experience i think it's always good to get you know into the, the sort of the organizational aspects of the sport because they have sort of real recent experience of what it's like to be in a team and what the challenges are and so on so yeah that's a good point jim Plus, he'd be able to catch anybody who's cheating pretty easily because you know where the where the yeah. gray area is. You kind of head that way. Kind of how things go. 
Next one is that Joanne Mir doesn't care who criticises him. And indeed, why should he? He's the world champion. <laughs> he was, yeah. Ex-world yeah. cha- champion. He sleeps uh, perfectly well at night, knowing that he did everything he could with the bike he had last year. I'd go along with that. I mean, he lost his kind of focus and concentration a couple of times, you know, getting irate coming in and out of the pits, as we saw on one or two occasions. But I think in his position, that was probably fairly understandable. The reigning world champion, and he didn't manage to win a race last year, which is a shame for him. But again, he came on very strong towards the end, so can perfectly well imagine he does sleep well at night. You know, the only thing that bothers me about that, he did not deserve any criticism for how he rode. And I'd be very focused about that, how he rode. He rode impeccable with a machine that was definitely not anywhere near the caliber of what he needed to be at the front. He did get a little whiny about not having the shape-shifting bike and all the other electronic gizmos that everybody else seemed to have. And once he was able to get them, his season sort of turned around. He was able to find the time on the track that he needed to qualify better so that he could at least get in with the Ducatis as opposed to being completely behind the Ducatis and then having to come from, what, 20, 30 meters back in every braking zone to stay with Mm. him. You know, you have to have an ego to be in this league. You have to have uh, belief in yourself. In my eyes, he just sort of came off a, a little bit crybaby-ish, that he didn't have the toys that everybody else had to play with. Yeah, he, no, he, he definitely did at times. And as I say, he was, he was straying into sort of Maverick Vinales levels of losing his, you know, losing his cool, which is not something that you really want to see. But for me, the direct comparison will always be your teammate. And he absolutely wiped the floor with Rins last year. So on that basis, he, he can't be feeling too bad about things. Nope, he can't. Uh, the next thing up in the news. Honda changes the brakes and suspension on the CBRRRN World Superbike. They've gone back to Nissan brakes and to show us suspension. I think Honda's trying to find that competitive edge because we know Honda owns both of those companies. Well, they own Showa, definitely. I think they own a good chunk mm-hmm. of Nissan, if not all of it. And uh, this could be sort of down that same KTM path. Like, hey, we have white power suspension. We own them. We're using them. All of our guys are dedicated to making that suspension work on our motorcycle and dealing with the dynamics and the chassis that we have. So Honda may be looking at this as a way to make their World Superbike team better. And then with a return in two or three years or something like that, those componentry would slide back over onto the MotoGP bikes and they'd have their own team of Showa technicians there. And they could then focus completely on trying to find front end feel on that motorcycle that they have and work only with their riders so they're not being let off by you know Owens is covering the entire paddock right so they're not mm-hmm. going to essentially build you a custom set of forks for your bike they're going to give you what everybody else has in the interest of fairness but they're also their development is then stagnated because they can't do what the guys at Honda want nor can they do what the guys at Yamaha want they have to somehow tread the center of that road so this is probably a smart move by them I don't see their MotoGP team leaving Brembo as a brake supplier, though. I don't see that happening. You you think they'd leave Brembo? No, not particularly. I was just thinking that probably in World Superbike, they've got two brand new riders, so it's a good time to make a massive change or pair of changes like that because they're not going to be comparing it to anything that they've ridden in terms of a World Superbike previously. And quite clearly, although they've been making slow but steady progress, the Honda needs to shift it up another gear in World Superbike. Otherwise, they're going to 
have another year of kind of tailing around midfield and looking decidedly average, which from Honda's point of view is been an embarrassment that's gone on far too long in production bike racing so i kind of understand why they're going fairly drastic on this one yeah next piece of news is mark marquez has averted the eye surgery for now i can never say this condition jim help me out with this one i believe it's pronounced dilopia dilopia yes yeah, I, I think the p is silent yeah okay so what that means is that he's free to train but that's only physical training i'm assuming that means kind of gym work and general fitness level work i think probably whether he can ride hmm, question mark but we'll continue to get updates uh, from marquez and his medical team and honda uh, his his medical man is dr sanchez dalmau according to that well done jim <laughs> i didn't know that so uh, we're, we're still in a holding pattern waiting to know whether the prodigal son is going to return again i have been checking his instagram page pretty tightly I've not seen him on a bike yet, but I have seen pictures of him at the gym, running, doing other sports, things of that nature. So it's fingers crossed that he can be 90% of what Mark Marquez was because I think MotoGP needs it, at least just for right now. The Mm. next wave of incredible guys is there or at the cusp. And I think we've seen that with Quattro, with Mir, with Martin. And so it's just, you know, you just, you, you don't want him. I don't want to see him go because I want to see all these other guys measured against the de facto man. So you can see that turnover as everybody gets, you know, as Mark gets older, as these guys get faster, there's that struggle where the, the king wants to hold on to his crown, but everybody else wants to take that crown from you. So I'm just hoping, hoping. We, we should remember as well that, uh, I mean, Marcus has been in MotoGP for quite a while. Uh, I mean, he's, he's got that kind of... Uh, 2013. Constant, eternal kind of uh, youthful look about him. But you tend to forget he's been around for quite a while. And, yeah. you know, probably I, I would need to check this, and I'm sure some of our listeners will know. In terms of how many years, say, for example, uh, Jorge Lorenzo, was in MotoGP for Marcus must be starting to approach the number of years uh, that Lorenzo was in the, in the series. And so he's not a spring chicken. And like Rossi, you know, the young guys don't get any slower and it gets harder. And the more you get injured and the more, uh, and particularly with him, with the sort of the serious nature of the injuries he's been dealing with over the last couple of years, it's bound to start to wear away at you, isn't it? So yeah. uh, I, I like most of the listeners and like you, Jim, I'm sure, listen to lots of other bike racing related podcasts and there is a general feeling out there that you know this might be just one challenge too far with this latest eye injury i really hope it's not because i think another couple of seasons on the honda with marquez would be mega as the new crowd really tried to topple the you know the king so fingers crossed that he's back yeah i i really hope so too uh the next thing in the news 355 millimeter discs are now allowed in MotoGP up from the 340 millimeters of last year. Is everyone looking for small gains in the braking zones or is this Brembo's response to the potential possibility of brake failures that we've seen at Austria where it's a heavy braking and there's not enough time for the brakes to cool back again? I'm not sure which way that it is. But, man, we have got to be getting close to the physical limits of what a rider could do, could sustain as far as G-force and braking. It's over a G that these guys are feeling. It's a 1.2, maybe 1.5. And if you go to 355 discs, where are we going to get? One, one six, one seven. 
I mean, as a reference point, when they launch into space, whether it's on the Dragon capsules from Elon Musk or the old space shuttle, it's like it's three Gs to get to space. So, I mean, you know, it's it's it, we're not anywhere near Formula One terms of you know five six Gs that those guys are pulling in, in breaking like three was it three or four Gs in breaking I think and laterally they're yeah it like four and a half five Gs, but uh, yeah we're getting you know if we see a lot of that repetitive strain in those uh, carpal tunnel type surgeries that these guys are getting it's only maybe going to get worse with these three hundred fifty five discs so. Mm. I don't know, but uh, you'd have to figure that's a safety-related thing, wouldn't you? Given you know the incident, for example, with Maverick Vinales having to bail off the bike in Austria. I mean, I know obviously the in all forms of motorsport, the aim is to get faster every year, and part of going faster is being able to stop quicker as well. So you would think, from a safety standpoint, you you know it's this kind of one of these sort of paradoxical things. It might be safer to run the bigger discs, but if it's making the bike that bit more extreme again and more difficult to ride, then there's obviously the knock-on negative aspect of safety associated with that let alone as you say jim i mean it's all very well pulling 4g in a formula one car you're strapped into a tub but these guys are taking that through the shoulders the elbows and the wrists you know and that's a tough old thing to take so if that part of the bike riding experience gets you know even more extreme i, I you know i pity them really but I, so i have to assume that that's purely a bike safety related change I agree. I think it's completely and totally safety. I just, I'm hoping that it isn't a weird, you always say it, the law of unintended consequences. I'm hopeful that, hey, this is a measure so that we don't have a brake failure, but I'm hoping that we don't start to see everybody having to go under the the knife in mid-season to uh, fix carpal tunnel syndromes and muscle pump, arm pump, and uh, things of that nature. Because at some point, I have this in my wish list is to see carbon brakes go away. Don't know. Oh, where are we in that? Well, oh, testing. Testing begins again uh, on the 5th of February, which is not actually all that long away, is it? Um, no. Less, less than a month now, which is great. So that'll be in Sepang. And then it goes straight over to uh, the Mandalika track, uh, this new track uh, that we saw in World Superbike at the end of last season. Uh, Mandalika in Indonesia on the 11th of February. And if I'm correct, I, th- I believe... Those two tests that the, at the completion of the Mandalika test on the uh, around the 11th is when the factories have to lock in their engine specs for the year. So that's the, the development freeze will come into force at that point. And we talked about this at, at some length in one of the last couple of shows, just in terms of where the various factories are respectively in terms of new engine developments and so on. So there is quite a lot of work for the teams to do at both of those tests. And it is obviously a bit risky for some of the teams, Yamaha in particular, putting all of their eggs into the basket of Sepang and Indonesia, which are going to be atypical climactic conditions compared to where they race most of the year and could suffer quite seriously from weather interruptions, which might severely limit the amount of running that actually goes on potentially. So those two tests are really critical. Yeah, it's really going to be critical for Honda. I mean, it's critical for everyone, but I think it's more critical for Honda because their bike is completely brand new. (laughs) You know, we've been over that at some length. I don't think Marquez is going to be there for those tests. So that that is, you know, wow, you know, they're really starting off on a back foot then. I mean, everybody loves what Brattle does, but I don't think Brattle is Mark Marquez and uh, his brother is not, you know, Alex isn't Mark either. Everybody's going to have to have 
to work really hard if they think that they're going to wind up getting anywhere close to Ducati. Uh, they have spent the better part of 10 years making that motorcycle where it is right now. And I mean, and they've done it in a very smart way. It is very incremental steps that they have taken in what there were three different winners on the Ducati mm-hmm. this year. Um, so that shows you that that motorcycle is able to adapt and be used by the elites. Whereas in um, the olden days, it was only Stoner that had made the thing work, let's be honest. So yeah. that is ominous for everybody else. Yes. So the Moto2 and Moto3 tests will be in Portugal on the 19th. I'm shocked that MotoGP didn't have a test there. Just because that track seems to have just enough of everything to make you have a well-rounded bike. You need a lot of front-end feel because of the the downhills, the off-cambers that exist in that track. There's a fairly fast set of flowing turns at the end. There's a few tight turns to test your acceleration and your grip that you get coming out of it, and they're not there. So yeah, they're going to two tracks that are basically flat. Yeah, and and climactically, yeah, atypical of everywhere else as well. So it's it's a risky strategy. I, I don't know why they've done it that way, but uh, then perhaps there's some logistics reasons for it. But very odd that they wouldn't have a European test. And yeah. particularly so, given how important it is ahead of the factories having to freeze the engines. I'm surprised there wasn't more of a clamour from the factories about this at, at the time when that was announced, because this is not something obviously that just gets thought up, like Formula One rules get thought up on the spot. I mean, this has been planned in you know some way in advance, I'm happy to say. So I suppose you know if, if anybody catches a cold on it and gets it wrong in MotoGP, then that's you know makes life interesting for us as viewers as the races get going. We shall see. A piece of very sad news is that Earl Hayden, patriarch of the racing dynasty that is the Hayden clan, passed away. I'm not sure when, Jim. I guess you'll know precisely when that was. I don't I don't have the precise date. I know it was before New Year's, so I think it was somewhere close to like December 28th. Right. But I don't know the precise day that he passed away. That was very sad for me. I grew up with all of the Haydens dirt tracking and running around with them. I never knew Earl to have a bad thing to say about anybody. He would talk and spend time chatting with anybody who stopped him. He was a fantastic man and his boys were every bit as great as he is. And the only consolation, and it's not really a, a consolation is that at least he gets to see Nikki again, you know, and that's not really a consolation because you know now tommy and roger lee are without their dad but uh you know i, I don't i don't really have any words for that I, it's just it's just sad well motopod and all of the current and past hosts i'm sure will send their sincere condolences to the hayden family on on that one i mean that kentucky drawl that we used to hear very very distinctive and the bond that he clearly had with the boys obviously if you're familiar with American racing, as you are, Jim, uh, much less so from my point of view, but having watched Moto America over the years, and certainly obviously with Nicky in, in MotoGP, Earl was a you know ever-present part of all of those guys' lives, wasn't he? So yeah. uh, I'm, I'm guessing, I, I know his, Nicky's mum was a pretty useful rider in her day as well, I believe. Yep, I don't know about was. Earl, but Earl presumably was a, a racer back in the day as well. So <laughs> yeah, what a, always what, a, what a clan that was. Yeah, well, Earl always had a 69 on his motorcycle because he always said he fell off so much you could read it if it was upside down. Yeah. So he had a a sense of humor to go with everything else, too. (laughs) 
Oh, we're oh next bit of news here. Here's a fun one. Petrucci went from MotoGP to running Rally Raid and running the hardest rally of them all, the Dakar, and he won a stage. Yeah. And I think that is just absolutely phenomenal. Mega. He looks good on the bike. I don't know. Have you watched any of the car, Rich? Um, I, I, I don't really know where to watch Dakar. You know, I guess you can catch it on YouTube, some of the highlights and stuff. So I, I must make a note of doing that. But, I mean, it is a surprise in the terms of it's his first event. But I suppose it's not a surprise in the sense that we know he's an absolute kick-ass rider. And that if anything, he was ill-suited to MotoGP just because of his physical size and, and power and bulk. And those are the sorts of things that are no doubt proving to be very handy weapons in his arsenal as he approaches this brand new challenge. So massive surprise that he would could win a stage. But on the other hand, I suppose perhaps we should have seen this one coming. Yeah, he fits the bike really well. You yeah. know, he, he's an old motocrosser, so he's sort of got that feel. He's got the long legs. The bike's just sort of moves underneath of him. I never realized that either until I saw it. I just I knew he was riding for KTM, so I just thought he would ride in the KTM factory team. Mm. He rides for the Tech 3 rally raid team. So I guess Tech 3 is put together a helped him put together a team, I guess, in some way or some form. Uh, if anybody's looking for that car coverage, there's a motorsport TV app. I've talked about this before, Rich. They have, you have. Yeah. they have all of the Dakar coverage. They even got back to like 2018. You can watch every stage wrap up. They're small and digestible. They're like 10 to 12 minutes, and they cover everything that sort of happens on the day. And they're like one day behind. So okay, okay, if, yeah. I'll check yeah, that out. there's a there's a place to go look. Little bit of Moto3 news here. We've touched on this a few times. I haven't been entirely clear but in the past but cf moto won't be the only chinese brand on the moto 3 grid next year a, a firm or a team called qj motor are going to rebrand a ktm and they have a collaboration with the sponsorama team that's ruben Schaus's team set up i believe i um, think you're right so okay that'll be that's a little bit more variety onto the grid which is always a good thing yeah but it's still there's just now more ktms on the grid yeah which it, it doesn't matter. I mean, I would like to see them build their own motorcycle, but I mean, it's that's an endeavor. But it is putting China onto the map as far as a motorsports country. But there's even what the next year there's a Chinese driver in Formula One. Yes. That's so correct. that's going to be interesting. I mean, we haven't been to China for a race in three years, something two, like two, that. Three. Two, two or three. three. So yeah. I'm not. I don't know what this is going to do for like. The population to suddenly become like motorcycle fans or become MotoGP fans. If it brings them in, great. I mean, I'll watch MotoGP anyway, but it's nice when there's American there to root for as well. So I'm really excited about Moto2 because of that. So hopefully, you know, whatever grows the sport and brings it into everybody so that everyone can see how great this is, I'm all for. And I think this is maybe just another step in the rung of the ladder. Oh, Carlo. Pernet. I would go, yeah. And Pernet, okay. Says that Honda are desperate to sign either Fabio Quattrara or Juan Mir to their team. And that has to do with the fact that they don't really know what's going on with Mark and his condition. And they have to have a future after Mark. You can't ride forever. Rossi tried and did his best and came <laughs> that. I got my fingers together for everybody who can't see. Uh, that close to, to doing it forever, it seems like. But it seems likely that Mir is going to be a Honda rider in 2023. And I I have got to believe that he will be. I really think Mir is going to go there and probably win titles. 
I think Mir has, I think he has a lot more talent than what we kind of perceive from the outside. He he didn't set the world on fire when he won his world championship in MotoGP. He did sort of set it on fire in a dominating fashion when he was in Moto3. And then, you know, he really, we talked about this, he didn't have a great Moto2 career. He's there one year, had a podium, and jumped on to the Suzuki team. Well, smart move by him. But I think that that might be a really good combination to watch out for. It's different. I think Mir has a little more setup ability in him, where I think Marquez and Pole kind of just grab it by the neck and just fling it around and just ride fast. And it's like, what? How'd you do it? Not sure, mm. <laughs> but it works, right? I mean, you know, to that extent, they, they, those two remind me of Freddie Spencer. Like, Freddie just was fast on whatever you put underneath of him, and I think Mark could make a bicycle fast. And I think Mir has that ability, too, to, to be fast on anything that he has, but I think that he just needs a little bit better something underneath of him. And if you think about it, they, Honda gets 2022 to basically develop their all-new bike, get it pretty well honed in and then Mir takes on it and refines it that last bit and maybe he doesn't win a 2023 title but maybe he wins a 2024 title and then runs off a couple more and it's a career so uh i just thought that was just really interesting mm. oh, there's day. there's a lot to unpack there oh, we don't know they're still under contract we're talking wow. about 2023 here <laughs> so well, start I unpacking mean... Ladies and gentlemen, place your bets for a Repsol Honda 2023 team of Jan Mir and Pedro Acosta. Whoa, damn. I didn't even think about that one. Because I'm guessing that clearly Honda are taking a total change of direction with the bike. And that has to be with the view on a post-Marquez life. I would uh, think so. Either, would either think he so. retires or he's not fit, fit enough to race on anymore. He decides it's not worth the risk. And I'm guessing a Polis Bargro will be out of contract at the end of 2022. So you could be looking at two new riders. And as you say, Jim, a, a somewhat developed bike. And somebody like Mir would absolutely fit the bill. I, I think actually, although I can't prove this, and I don't know that anybody's ever said it, but I, I, I always have this feeling that Mir is slightly undervalued in the sense that people think the Suzuki is an easy bike to ride. I mean, it's a MotoGP bike. Nothing is easy to ride, but it is kind of... It's kind of damning with false praise in a way. Often that it's it's the one that has the best chassis. It's kind of the best on corners and stuff. And it, but it's not easy to ride and to win a championship on it. You've got to be supremely talented, which he is. So he would be an obvious bet for Honda. But you know they are going to be going after Acosta. And I know KTM will be desperately trying to keep hold of him. And it remains to be seen how he does this year in Moto Two. But it's not beyond the bounds of possibility, is it? No. And Honda's pockets are deep enough. That they will they will pry Acosta away from KTM. I, I think that to follow on to that, I think Marquez would still be under contract at Honda. So how about this? Pedro Acosta and Juan Mir with the orange wheels, but Mark on a LCR Honda with his brother. Yep, sponsored by some Spanish something, right? That's kind of juicy because then you never if know. You, you don't, but that's tantalizing to think about considering then you would have four Hondas that would be obviously factory spec with at least three of those guys capable of winning races. Ooh. Yeah. Boy, that just got tasty. I'm pretty confident 
that we can say that Honda are going to get their asses kicked by Ducati this next year. So they're going to be desperate to come out punching with something that works. And, and not clearly, you, you can't do things overnight and, and be successful. Well, you can, but it's highly un, unusual for that to happen. So it, it takes a combination of long-term planning around bikes and riders. And, and as we said a little while ago, I mean, Mark has been around for quite a while. And he's, there was an interesting thing that I read the other day looking at people's crash stats. I mean, he has crashed so much. It's a wonder, really, that he hasn't been seriously injured before. What happened in Hareth last year? So I just feel that Mark knows, and Honda certainly, you know, are recognising that he's on the sort of the, the downslope part of his career now. And they have to start going aggressive to, to get back to where they've been with him. So a mere Acosta partnership on a somewhat developed new bike package would make an awful lot of sense. Mm. You know, just kind of thinking back here, because, you know, having this piece of information makes things a little bit different. Acosta had that sharp drop off in his performances. Do you think it was related to maybe Honda wanting a signature on a letter of intent or a letter of first refusal or something like that? And he's trying to make a decision that's three years down the road as opposed to what's happening right in front of him. I don't know. I wouldn't surprise me. I wouldn't. No, I mean. I don't think I come on. I mean, we I think we know everybody is talking to this kid. The question is, is is he seems to make like the most logical fit. Spanish writer has that it factor that TV loves that sponsors love. You put him as a Spanish kid with a Spanish oil company. (laughs) I'm sorry. You don't need to be Scooby Doo and the gang to put this line together and figure Mm. out who's the villain in all this. Right. It's just. Yeah. So. And with a world champion Spanish teammate in me, that would be a dream team for for Repsol Honda, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Complete and total dream team. Oh, tasty things to think about. We're going to be thinking about this all year long because this this is not going to this isn't going to go away. And I think to kind of add on to it. Pernat also believes that Miller and Zarka are going to leave Ducati. Where do they go? Tough, tough question. Right. I mean, they either go back down to the, the sort of the lower Ducati running teams, although I think that would be a pretty bitter pill for Miller to swallow. Maybe not quite so much Zarko, but nobody wants to be demoted, you know, really, do they? So, I mean, I, I just, again, as we say often on this show, there are so many quality young riders coming up that the the older riders who've kind of been around a few years and they've had their chances, maybe they don't get a, a second bite of the cherry or a third or fourth bite of the cherry, as, as would be the case here. Uh, I mean, it's that brutal now with the avalanche of fast young guys coming through that I, I could very easily see Zarco going racing a production bike somewhere. Mm-hmm. And Miller's already dipped his toe in that water. Perhaps that was a proprietary, a proprietary thing. Well... My thought is Zarco goes to World Superbike and maybe maybe Jack winds up on a Yamaha somewhere. Not 100 percent sure, but I kind of have this feeling that the Vicioso is back for one last hurrah. So that seat opens up and Miller could easily slide over there. It's a demotion from a factory team, but it's a pretty good team to be on. They have won races. I don't know. It's a stay tuned thing, right? Yeah, it would be very disappointing if Miller was not to have a seat so I think he would land somewhere as, as you say Jim on a different manufacturer probably oh let's finish the news up here uh let's see MotoGP cannot continue to ride on Rossi's coattails and must do more marketing like F1 well haven't they, they they've got their Amazon series which I I haven't seen anything show up yet 
Not on even, it yeah. for that. But I agree that they have to do something because Rossi's not there anymore. And we're not sure about whether Marquez is there or not. Because if you watch the races, you know, there's always been this large contingent of yellow for Rossi. And as the years have kind of gone along with Marquez, as Rossi's star has waned at the end, these same stands suddenly became fairly red, reddish, red, 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 orange, reddish, orange, yeah. however, whatever color. I think it's more red, but whatever color. And they've all been sort of along the lines of going at that, moving towards Marquez. And now we don't know what's going to happen with him, but somehow MotoGP needs to market the Oliveras, the Benders, the Quattararos, the Mears, the Martins. I don't know how you do that from the standpoint of that they're such different people and they're in such different places in their lives, but there isn't just that one guy anymore. So I'm not sure. It's a, it's a tricky thing for them to do. I do think that this series on Amazon is going to be good for this, going to be good to bring more people to it and make awareness of it. But I'm not so sure that it's enough because we are kind of we are kind of light on sponsors. There, there is also at the risk of being a bit of a dooms, doomsday spreader, but there is always that double edged sword as well. We again, I don't want to get into the travesty of the Formula One finale because that was just beyond mm. beyond a joke. And there is a reasonable line of argument, and I think it has it's a bit conspiratorial, but I think it has some merit, which is to say that there was so much desperation for that Formula One race to end as a race that the rule book just got torn up, you know, in a moment of madness in order to allow that to happen. And there's been quite a lot of chatter about the fact that things like the Netflix series Drive to Survive kind of we we touched on this on one of the last shows. It's it's a bit too pantomime, and I really hope MotoGP don't go down this route because the strongest selling point for me that MotoGP has, if you compare, it, say, for example, with Formula One, is the fact that these are almost always very good races, whereas Formula One races can be as dull as ditch water a lot of the time just because of the nature of, of of Formula One, and they're trying to do stuff technically to change that, and and that's to their credit, but. That is not particularly a problem that MotoGP has suffered from in the last few years. And we must remember that through the heyday of, of Rossi, when he really took MotoGP kind of international, let's say, quite often he was winning races by 20 or 30 seconds. And even his teammate on the same bike was nowhere near him. So, you know, it ebbs and flows, doesn't it, in terms of popularity and who's doing what and, and so on. And I, I, I like the Dorna uh, platform in terms of, you know, for the, those of us who subscribe to the to the Dorna feed, I think it's a very high quality service that they run there, far far in advance of anything that Formula One has in that regard. It's it's far too expensive, and we have some things to say about some of the race direction in terms of the footage direction, in terms of lingering shots in the pits all the time. I know that some of our listeners have, have written in and expressed similar thoughts about that. So there are areas like that that can be improved, but I don't think fundamentally MotoGP has a huge problem. They've just got, as you say, Jim, they've got to start to pick out those celebrities who, who can be pushed as personalities a little bit. But we don't want to get too far down this road of trying to sensationalise and make stuff up. Otherwise, we're just going to enter into this stupidity of Formula One. Mm, I, I agree with you. One of the things I was thinking, and it's a it's across from, from the hockey team that I follow. So I'm a big fan of the NHL. And we have a team in Columbus, which is about an hour away from me. But the team has gone through like a basically a complete rebuild. There's only a couple of guys left over from the teams of previous years. So when they have stoppages of play, 
during the game, they put up on the board a little thing called get to know a player. And so they ask him like silly rapid fire questions like what's your favorite video game, which is inclined to the generation that's there or what sport do you dominate other than hockey? And, and it's just it's it's like 30 seconds. But wouldn't that be cool to know something more about Juan Mir and Jorge Martin or Acosta or anybody else or Remy mm-hmm. Gardner, whoever, and just a quick little coming, not necessarily a commercial break because there aren't any, but in that there's always that time on the video feed when you're at the lunch break or you're waiting after morning warm-up for the races to start. There's this, why not have these little 30-second, not not 30-second, but, you know, a couple-minute little conversation with the riders, just because they're personalities. If you yeah. ever get to beat them, they are not robotic and stiff. If you can get them into a place where they're going to feel free and comfortable, they're very, they're highly intelligent. Every one of them is amazingly highly intelligent. And there's, like, you get there's something else there. And I think sometimes... The general populace, not necessarily us, or fans of the sport, the anoraks, we, the general populace seems to think, well, it's a dumb, stupid, mind-numbed idiot that's running around in a car or a bike, and they're not. And I, I don't know. I mean, does that work? I don't know, but eh, it's an idea. Toss it and, out there. And, and the, the reality is that there's actually quite a lot of that kind of content on the Dorna yeah. platform. But it just isn't – it isn't – it's not, to wide, you. it's not widespread yeah. enough, though, in terms yeah. of people. I mean, if you're dyed in the wall fans like we are, and you're prepared to pay 150 to 200 dollars, euros, pounds, whatever, and that is a significant investment, I have to say, mm. and I think it's far, far too expensive. It's a barrier to entry for the casual fan, and because most sport, I'm afraid, has gone down this road of disappearing behind paywalls. And whilst that might enrich the sport and the teams and the riders and so on, and that's great for them, it, it does narrow your audience. And, you know, motorcycle racing is already somewhat of a fringe sport compared to, say, a lot of the car racing. And I'm not just talking about Formula One. I mean, touring cars and stuff is is pretty popular all around the world. So they do need to figure out a way, as you say, whereby they manage to get that kind of content out on some sort of free to air basis so that people think, oh, that Oliveira, bloody hell, he's a dentist and he's a top level motorcycle rider. Right. And he's extremely intelligent. He can speak five languages, you know, et cetera. So that people get to know the personalities, which is what you're saying, Jim, which is that it's about empathy and connection with people. And the fact that they happen to go around in circles pretty fast, you know, hopefully that then draws people into understanding why they want to do that and getting into the racing. But they're not going to do it from the other direction, I don't think. So they've got to figure that one out. But the wrong way to do it would be to go all sensationalist and try to make some big sort of cartoon pantomime out of this because that would dev- that devalues the sport. And what happened in the end of the Formula 1 season was just beyond, well, I don't even know where to start. I'm not going to get into it now. But that's a proper switch-off forevermore situation for me, that one. I think you really hit on something. It's the fact, like and you said, like when Oliveira's a dentist, all of these guys have some little thing that they do that somebody else out there in the world is going to say, I like that too, or I've done that, or I didn't know that you like that too. That's where you find your your common ground, and you're like, well, then that person's like me. Just He happens to be doing this at a world level. We all have that. We all have this connection that we all ride motorcycles, and we all enjoy that. But there's, for me, how many other people out there who listen like the NHL or like Speedway for you, or I mean, I do too, but it's, that's motorcycles. But you get that point that we were talking about mm. space nerd stuff earlier on, right? I'm a big NASA fan, big nerd about space. It's like, w- it would be really wild if 
as an example, Juan Mir says, yeah, I know. I really, I always check Elon Musk's Twitter feed and I'm always looking for the next launch. Well, that would be really cool, but it's one of those things that we don't know. And if we did know it and it, and it was on the Dorna feed, where would you find it? Exactly. And as I've complained before, and I really think they should take steps to sort this out, a big part of the problem in terms of this connection between, well, even serious fans like us and certainly casual fans or potential fans, and that's really the crowd that we're talking about, are potential fans. And that's the biggest fan base that there is, the potential ones. The fact that riders, are not all of them, but you know, you know, they're kind of hemmed in by PR and what they can and can't say. And the fact that as fans that pay a lot of money for things like Dawn or around the world, you know, the various different broadcasters who have the exclusive rights or whatever, never mind if you pay, as I do when I go to MotoGP and Silverstone, the thick end of 500 quid for that weekend. By the time you got there, you've, you've stayed somewhere, you've got your weekend ticket, you've paid $20 for a dog burger. It is not a cheap endeavour. And the fact that you're so removed from the teams, the pits, the riders, that is not good for the sport. No, because it's about personalities. So, so they need to open it up because it's far, far too exclusive. And it's not right that if you're a multimillionaire, you can pay five grand to be in some sort of swanky corporate hospitality, and maybe you'll see a few things going on, you know, behind the pit boxes or whatever. But you know, most people are not in that position. I'm certainly not. No, I'm not. And it's not right that the people that really love the sport and have been following it for years have, over those progressive years, been taken further and further and further away from the action basically. And I think the sport really needs to sort that out. Agree. Why don't you hit the last uh, news item there, Rich, and then we'll get into the three things. Yeah. VR46 has a title sponsor in MotoGP. At long last, the saga has ended. It's a company called Mooney. Uh, it's the, the first Italian proximity banking and payments company, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> I'm guessing this is some sort of cryptocurrency or, or, or uh... finance, whatever. I don't know. But anyway, I suppose the good news is that Valentino's MotoGP team has a title sponsor to help it go racing so that's very much to our benefit I slightly caustically put in there that the you know the fake shake and the uh, Saudi Aramco sponsorship remains a mystery and has disappeared even further into the desert presumably because that just never came off so happily from Ross's point of view although I'm sure he could perfectly easily afford to fund it himself but uh, I suppose it's much better if you can get a sponsor to do it for you so yes Mooney uh, an Italian proximity banking and payments company. So maybe it's, it's like the Italian out. PayPal or something like that. I, I don't know. But uh, anyway, that's the last news item. So yep. I think, Jim, from there, we can start to get into the main purpose of this podcast, despite the fact we've been talking for 40 minutes. Well, there was a, in our defense, there was a lot of news. There was had, a lot of news. It had come news. through in the last three weeks. And I think it was good to kind of run through it all here's the opinion on everything and you know how we get we sort of go on and on yeah there was so we were we were we were spitballing as they say trying to think of a few things to talk about during the off season in particular so i kind of thought well maybe a good one for today would be and again please fire in thoughts and comments on this or, or things that you would uh, have in your list but i thought let's let's talk about three things that we would like to see or that we're looking forward to in 2022 now, that can be British Superbikes, MotoGP World Superbikes, Moto America, Speedway, not ice hockey. I'm going to draw the line on There's that. There's limits. Region. Sorry. So I'm, I'm guessing we've probably got some similar things on the list. So I've conservatively come up with 10 uh, or, or nine, nine or 10 anyway, but I've got my top three. And if you take one of them, I'll just go into my reserve list. So, Jim, you go first. Uh, the first one, I want, I want to see how Dennis Fazia comes out next year in Moto3 because... 
Fauci always has started late, then had this great momentum, and then didn't get to the championship. He got really super close, almost did it, thought he rode incredibly well. I want to see, can he take that momentum that he has? Can he get back on that new Honda? Can he come out swinging and be on the podium or very close to the front in the first couple of races? And can he take that as a way, as a springboard towards his own world title? That's my first one. Good one. Yeah. Okay. Well, that one didn't even occur to me. Uh, and that is a really good one. And I'm not sure when we were doing the season roundup in the last couple of races of the season anyway, where we were talking about Foggia obviously quite a lot because of, you know, how tight and feisty that run into the championship was with Acosta. Something I, I can't remember if we mentioned this or not, but I definitely read or, or heard somewhere that around mid-season when Foggia's form suddenly took an upturn, coincidentally or otherwise i suspect not coincidentally coincided with his father being told he wasn't welcome in the pit box anymore now i think there was one of these kind of uh, what do you call them touchline soccer dads or whatever you want to call it kind of you know this very sort of typical or, or motocross dads i think uh, a, f- a few riders over here have, have called them you know these people that are in the pits and are just a disruptive influence getting into their ride or their son or daughter maybe daughter but often son's ear just destabilizing things whereas what the rider really needs at this level at least is is the team around him or her uh, and uh, they're just focused on that and so i'm very sure i'd read that somewhere that fodge's dad had been asked to be less involved let's politely put it and around that time fodge's form suddenly went up so assuming that that's a, a continuation in terms of that dynamic within the team next season one would assume that he's going to hit the ground running certainly hope so so what's your first thing that you've got, Rich? I'm doing mine in reverse order. Oh, okay. Because my first, my top one is a, really a bit obvious. So number three on my list was, and it's a kind of a fingers crossed one, bearing in mind COVID is not not over, although we're learning to live with it. And that is the return of the TT in the Northwest 200. Mm, I did not put that on my list, but yes, I would love to see the TT back again. This will be the third year. We've missed it for the last two years. Last I think two. both of those events have been cancelled because of COVID. And what intrigues me particularly this year, assuming they do go ahead, is that Glenn Irwin is taking part. Now, he's the Irish, British, mm. Irish BSB rider, but he's been very successful in the past at Macau. I know it's always a bit sort of slightly at odds to call Macau a, a road race, but because it's a street kind of street track, but it's part of the road racing fraternity and scene. Uh, and he's been very successful there, and he's been very successful at the Northwest 200. But to my knowledge, he's never raced at the TT, so he's part of the official Honda lineup this season, assuming it goes ahead. So that will be very interesting to see how Glen Irwin goes at the TT. But primarily, number three on my list is fingers crossed those events take place, and particularly the TT, because as I, as I mentioned last year, it's going to be live streamed this year. Well, that was certainly the plan last year before it was cancelled the event so it'll be great to be able to catch some live coverage agreed so mine are all sort of moto gp centric so i'll go with you know i i had three for like moto three and three for moto gp and moto so i'll go with a moto two one here just kind of mix it up a little bit i cannot wait to see how pedro acosta goes on a moto two bike that was my number one <laughs> <laughs> i figured we had to be probably on the same page predictably yeah that kid, I just, I, I, I'm fascinated. I want to see it. I, I don't know what he's going to do on that bike. Have not a clue, but I can't wait to see it. One thousand percent agree, and I hate that phrase. <laughs> it's a hundred percent, not a thousand. But 
it's the most mouth-watering prospect, I think, of the coming season across any class in any sport, as far as I'm concerned. You know, we do from time to time see somebody that does brilliantly well in Moto3 and then has a very major struggle as soon as they arrive in Moto2. And, and some of them figure it out and a few of them never do. I mean, there's a, there's a few good recent examples of that. Uh, Lorenzo Della Porta being a, a very recent one who is all adrift in Moto2, having won the Moto3 World Championship. So on the other hand, there are those riders like Jai Mir, who we were talking about earlier on, only gets one season in Moto2 because they're quite clearly that good. And the MotoGP teams want to snatch them before somebody else does. So, yeah, the, the Pedro Acosta and Moto2 thing is going to be mouthwateringly good to, to, to watch. And can he adapt that very unique style that he exhibited on the three bike to the two? There's a That's lot the of question. questions about that, right? You know, there's yeah. so much. We all know that Raul Fernandez sort of adapted a Moto3 style to a Moto2 bike. Does Acosta do the same or does he completely change his style to suit? Does he ride it with the back end out? I have no idea. Uh, it's all those things that you want to know and you don't know, and you're not going to know until you get to see him on a bike. Yeah. He's, he, he might take to that thing like a duck takes to water and just smooth sailing and just run off with another title and be like, well, yeah, okay. KTM, where am I going? Oh, you don't have a spot. Gee, I'll just walk over here to this Honda garage and ride one of those. <laughs> I planted that seat now, you see. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Anyway. One of the interesting things I want to do in one of the off, you know the upcoming off-season shows, although we don't have that many because the season starts again in March, but uh, is it March or April? I think it's the end of March. But in March is looking at since Moto Three's been around, looking at the championship, uh, the champions by year, and seeing what happened to them. Now, some of them yeah. it's obvious, it's quite obvious, but a few of them have, have gone in very strange directions or, or just mm-hmm. hit brick walls, not literally, actually. But yeah, so that's something we'll perhaps have a look at in our upcoming show. My number two. And again, I'm, I'm spreading the net a little bit in terms of race series. Is Scott Rudding at BMW and World Superbikes? The Brit now, car for a Brit guy, yeah. Okay, go. Yeah, it, it caught people by surprise, and he faced quite a lot of criticism at the time. You know, oh, he's only doing that for the money. I actually f- suspect and hope that he did it for more than that, because I'm sure he was earning a fairly decent level of coin in the Ducati World Superbike team. It is a curious move, however, because BMW, a bit like Honda, have been around the edges of success in World Superbike for quite some years. And they came back as a sort of a more fully fledged works outfit just a a few years ago under Sean Muir Racing team. So there's a lot of pedigree there. And Reading is quite obviously intended to be that last piece of the jigsaw to get them regularly in the top three. But he faces a stiff challenge because as we talked about in the run into the World Superbike Championship last year. Razgati Oglu and Ray, you know, are ferociously quick. And Reddin did mix it with them on the Ducati, albeit slightly inconsistently in terms of going for the championship. Uh, and so is he going to take an almighty step backwards on the BMW or is he going to really bring that bike forward? Because, I mean, Reading, let's not forget, he's a top, top level rider. I like riders who are willing to take the risk and you certainly can't accuse... Scott Redding of not taking risks. You know, he dropped out of MotoGP and went to British Superbikes, won the championship at the first go, then went across the World Superbike and has, has done well. I mean, he's he almost won the championship, or he's certainly firmly in the running for the two seasons that he's been here so far. So to jump to BMW now is a very brave move. So he, I'm hoping, as I say, he hasn't done it for money. He's done it because he sees potential in the bike and he thinks he can win on it. And, and I really hope that he does, because that would be great for World Superbike, because they've now got Kawasaki and Yamaha duking it out sorry for the pun with duke because he's got rid of his left the ducati team but 
And you got Bautista, Bautista going back to Ducati. So who knows? He might have a sensational year like he did the first year he was on the Ducati. So World Superbike next year, like all of these series, is going to be phenomenally good, I think. Very possible. So it makes my number two on the list. Okay, so I'll go with my number one on the list. It's in MotoGP, and it is not what you think it is, because I know what your mind's thinking right now. It is, I am hopeful to see an end to all of the electronic aids that are on those motorcycles. I really don't like the shape-shifting bikes. I, I just, I have this fear that the electronics will never let it go back. It'll be stuck in some configuration that we don't, that doesn't work. Uh, Miller at one time said how he rode the first couple laps at Silverstone and the bike felt like a chopper because it was, he couldn't get the whole shot device to let go and put the bike back into the attitude that's there. I'm all for having a traction control system. I think it should have three levels. There should be like a high, a low, and a rain setting. That's it. That's all that you have. In my opinion, if you took away all the shape-shifting bikes, if you take away the whole shot devices and you you have a very unevasive trash control system, you will force the manufacturers to stop building a missile motorcycle and then make it capable of going around a track very fast by adding electronic wizardry to it. And you're going to have to start building motors and chassis that actually handle, work, and the throttle delivery is a direct connection between the rider's right wrist and the amount of traction that they have that they feel. Formula One went through this. They had the all-singing, all-dancing cars in the 90s, and then they dropped the active cars, but you still had automatic gearboxes, and they changed back to paddle shifting now, and they took traction control away from the cars. They don't have any. And everybody thought, well, you're going to see the cars go back to the 70s, and they're going to be broad sliding through corners. Okay, this you're you're not going to get back to the blacky era of 500s and they're just going crazy here. It isn't going to happen. But what I think you're going to see is you'll see really good racing because you're going to have these guys who are so talented on a motorcycle doing what we think in our mind is next to impossible to do on that motorcycle. Because you have to admit, Formula again, we always going to be in a Formula One comparison thing here, but you have to admit. Formula One looks like anybody could sit in the race car and go fast in it from the onboard cameras that you see there. And it, not MotoGP is definitely not that way, but I'm afraid that with all the era, with the trash control, the you know the trash control that you have, the shape shifting bikes, all this stuff, you are going to start to see it more and more look like well that was really kind of easy to do, and it it isn't. We know that it isn't, but again we're talking about hey here's this casual fan that turns on the TV and they've been seeing some phenomenal racing, but it's like the other thing too, is if you're developing all those electronics, again, traction control, I can see that having a translation to the street bikes that you and I can buy and making it better for us. I don't think a shape shifting whole shot device bike is going to be good for the street. I don't know what purpose it serves. So you're spending money on something that really makes your motorcycle go fast, but doesn't really help anybody else. So I would like to see, a restriction of this. And I think MotoGP kind of understands this because they banned that stuff in Moto3 and they banned it in Moto2 and you can't have wings and sprout flicks up and aerodynamic body works and all this other stuff. But I really, really just don't want to see these guys go into a where we're, we're, we're studying very hard on the air that's between the side of the motorcycle and the ground in a corner. And we're trying to somehow 
help the bike be stabilized be because of all this. Um, I, I just don't want to go there. So mm. that's my and, hope. And it's, it's not going to happen, like, but I'm going to hope. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, the, the sports, all of these mo- motorsports in particular, that from time to time, they have to take a sort of a, a seismic shift backwards in a way, just to s- slow things down because things get out of hand. And there are already some riders saying that the current breed of 1,000cc GP bike is too fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you know when you, when those bikes are starting to go airborne over the hump at the end of the straight in Mugello, you've got problems on your hands because we've seen what happens if you crash there. Marquez famously did it in his rookie season, I think. It's the fastest ever crash recorded in MotoGP. Yeah, you know, it was around about what year did he start? Was it twenty third? Third? It was either thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, and it might it have been thirteen. A, it was like a pre practice one or two Friday morning. Um, crash it was just caught on the circuit tv if you if you youtube it i mean obviously he was okay inverted commas because if you jump off a bike at 215 20 mile an hour you know there are obviously our consequences but you can find that bit of footage and we were talking in one of the last shows with the new biofuels coming in that's going to one of the the consequences that is going to drop them down a little bit and we were saying from from a certain respect that's a good thing a, it's a little bit safer, and B, you get to see the bikes a bit more if you're at the track, in terms of just going that wee bit slow. I mean, it's all right, because it's, it's hardly perceptible. But So anything that slows the bikes down, I think, is probably a good thing. And I, I'm like you, Jim, I'm to- totally 100% on board with the whole get rid of the traction control and a lot of this kind of wizardry. I mean, they did do that a few years ago, if you remember, when they went to the control ECU. Mm-hmm. Dorna had a big battle on their hands, if you remember. It took them years to achieve it. They had to go through that whole claiming rules team yeah. bike fiasco you know to force honda to accept and it was honda that was the oh yeah the problem there oh yes but equally you know it's like the whole argument around nuclear disarmament you can't uninvent something that's been invented but it's out there so it's a question of how do you sort of try and control it as best as you possibly can and that for me definitely applies to some of these gizmos but as you say things like shapeshifters it's never going to appear on a road bike i can't conceive of any reason why you would ever have that on a road bike current generation 1,000cc or even 600cc road bikes for that matter are already too quick for your average road when you've got cars and tractors and mud and leaves and God knows what else, kids on push bikes and so on. So, yeah, the sport has to kind of look at itself and say, where are we going with some of this stuff? And and hopefully, I, I do agree with you. I mean, that, that would be a hope that they would start to have that conversation internally. Hopefully. Now, you stole my number one because that was Pedro Acosta in Moto2. So if you'll, Sorry. Indulge, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to go, gonna right go with, a, with a split for my number one spot. So slightly left field. This wasn't going to make my top three. But however, I am quite interested to see what happens with Vinales on the Aprilia this year. Ah, OK, that's a good one. Top quality rider, we know. Fragile in the old between the ears aspect, definitely. But in that Aprilia team, perhaps that's a slightly more stable environment for him. And the bike, as we saw last year, came on in its development, stalled a bit as the year went on. But next year's an, another crack at it. And it, nothing against Alicia Spargo, quality rider as well. But perhaps, you know, Vinales is just that extra little impetus that they need with his recent experience, particularly on the AM, to take them that bit for, further forward again. So I'm not suggesting that he's going to be a championship contender or anything, but uh, you would hope and expect that he and that bike will move a bit further up the field. So that that's one that I'm looking forward to. And because I've I've done a Formula 1 and I've made up some new rules. You're on the on fly the, here. On the hey, whole. Ma- Michael yeah, Massey, tot- we need to get those cars out of the way. Totally on the fly. I'm, I've just ripped up the rules and I've made a new one for myself. So, And that's 
basically anything to do with British superbikes, <laughs> which is a slightly <laughs> slightly wide scope statement. But I'm talking about most of the classes in British superbike series, but I'll focus on BSB itself. So you've got Tara McKenzie, who's staying in the series to defend his title, basically because he couldn't generate the funds needed to get a ride in World Superbike. That's a shame. That's, that's a discussion all on its own. British Superbike champion cannot get a ride in World Superbike for lack of funds. Why the hell would the, mo- the money sloshing around in this sport is an, an automatic graduation up to the next level for Moto America winners? For Do you know what I mean? It, it's, it's crazy. Unless people want to stay, but fair enough. But so anyway, he's, he's been forced to stay in place. I was at the bike show at the NEC back end of November, I think it was. I think I mentioned on the show and I was hanging around watching some rider interviews on the Kawasaki stand and being a bit of a nosy parker like I am, I was having a beady look around the back of the stage where the big Kawasaki stand was and I saw Leon Haslam and Stuart Higgs, who's the BSB series kind of director, in deep conversation. So I think there's every likelihood that Leon Haslam is back into British superbikes next year and I suspect he'd be on a green bike if my money was going anywhere, but we'll see. With BSB, I don't know if this is the same in Moto America, but quite often a lot of the team and rider announcements don't happen until quite close to the start of the season. So whilst there are a number of teams and riders announced already, there's still quite a few slots still to be filled. So we don't know what Haslam's doing, but my suspicion is that he'll be in BSB and I suspect he'll be on a Kawasaki. And then you've got Jason O'Halloran, Tommy Bridewell. These are the perennial high performers that never have won the championship. Can they do it this year? And Josh Brooks, the strange conundrum of Josh Brooks, who never got to grips with this year's Ducati for one reason or another, can he get back to winning ways? So th- those are just four things that immediately spring to mind with BSB. But that, again, is a series that's so deep, so high quality, on tracks that are real kind of scratcher tracks for the most part. You know, it's never never a dull moment in BSB. So I'm super looking forward to, to, to the British racing. And obviously, from a motorport point of view, I'm going to try and get to as many races as I can this year as well. Well, since you broke the rules, I'm going to run through a couple of things that I had here. Go, go so my other couple of ones in Moto3 is I hope to see Ethan Guevara and Sergio Garcia challenge Fagia for the title. Those two guys were rookies and seemed to be doing well. Garcia had his problem at Coda, bruises kidney, kind of ruined his championship run and then ethan guevara winds up winning the race in texas so i'm interested to see how they're going to go and the final one i got from moto 3 is what new spanish rookie or italian rookie is going to show up and just make us go wow maybe not wow like pedro acosta did but there's going to be someone who's going to come out of that group who just shows up and just is on fire and i'm looking forward to seeing who that is uh in moto 2 my other one was, selfishly from the American side, can't wait to see how Sean Dillon Kelly and Cameron Bobier go on the American racers team. Want to see an American back on the podium. Want to see an American win a race. That would be really good. Uh, hope to see all of that. And then the last thing for Moto2 would be hope to see Joe Roberts actually get his head right. A uh, guy with some talent, but seems like uh, Vinyala's a little fragile uh, in between the years. Hopefully he can get it together on the Italtrans team and make it look like he really belongs in the series. I'd go with all of those. Yep. Definitely. And and uh, from a Moto3 perspective, just again, from being a British person and being... Well, the new a team, bit, right? For, a bit biased. Yeah. I, I mean, 
super, super excited to see what Michael Laverty's team is going to achieve in Moto3 with uh, Josh Watley and Scott Ogden, uh, two British riders. I'm, I'm not so familiar in terms of the history with Scott. Certainly Josh has raced many, many years in Spain. And in some of those years, he's raced in Spain and Britain concurrently in the in the respective kind of Talent Cup series or Moto3 Junior series. So he has a lot of form running around with the fast Spanish kids that are coming through as well. So you never know. Uh, I mean, that's the ex-Patronus Moto3 setup pretty much in terms of personnel and equipment. So it's going to be out of the blocks, uh, a strong outfit. And Michael Laverty is, is a very, very clever guy. Uh, how he manages to manage his life with all of the different things he's involved in is, is quite eye-watering when I, mean, I you know I struggle to juggle two or three things but uh, you know this guy's got about 20 balls in the air at any given time so you know he's going to be a real driving force behind that team so from my point of view that that'll be really interesting to see we should really try to get you to get an interview with Michael I think uh, that'd be fantastic yeah definitely so I'll finish with the, the last two from MotoGP that I that I had mm-hmm. written out here. Uh, one is I hope to see Remy Gardner ride the KTM like his old man rode a Honda. Just that dogged determination, feet off the pegs, going every which direction. I know that's not really going to happen, but I want him to ride in that same spirit of his old man. Just tough as nails, Aussie grit, just going for it kind of a thing. Which I think would be fantastic to actually see. So I hope that actually happens. And then the other thing I had would be for KTM to kind of find their magic again. Because in this also kind of, is, and I'm going to include Honda in this as well. I yeah. want them to find their magic because I, I don't want a Ducati winning week in, week out. Although it's going to be interesting because I think between Miller, Pecco, and Martin, you could put them in any order at almost any race. But I really want to see the occasional hopefully Mark Marquez show up in there or Bender show up in there or Oliveira showing up in there and Quattraro battling it out with all of that all at the same time because it could be just an absolute epic season. So the onus is on at least those two manufacturers to up their game and there is an onus on Yamaha as well to give a little bit more power to that inline force that Quattraro can run with everybody up front. So Yep. It's going to be, it's always going to be fascinating, but those are some things I'm hoping to see. I mean, an honorary mention to Martin Darlington, ex-host and friend of the show. It's going to be the best season ever. That's right. Uh, that's what he always used to say. And it did, he's right. It was good somehow you, to think that somehow, the case. There's always a storyline that takes over that you didn't see coming and you really are become gripped by it. Last year was Marquez. He came back. And won races, and I don't think we really thought that was going to be kind of got ripped by it, or Rossi quitting, or whatever it is, that, you know, not quitting, retiring. I'm not sure that anybody really thought Pekka Banyar was as good as he proved to be in the second half of last season. Man, he, um, is, he looked fantastic, didn't he? And he's a championship favourite in my book, at least. Same here. I, I, I put it for Pekka to win the title. I just don't see anybody beating him. I mean, I just don't. I, <laughs> with, with a bit of a MotoGP flavour, the other things that were on my list was the 2022 Honda RCV. Yeah. How's it going to go? Yeah, yeah. You know, we've talked about that uh, earlier in the news, so we don't need to go over that. But that's brand new bike. So is it going to be a, a, a real pain in the butt for them to make it work? We don't know, obviously, what they're doing with the engine, but they must be changing it to some extent. And again, we have this engine freeze. That leads on to will any of the MotoGP teams effectively screw up with the engine freeze coming. Uh, I mean, again, we've spoken at length about Yamaha's 
potential trouble on this one and the fact that Quattrario was very unhappy at the end of the Hereth test in November, I think it was. Yeah, but they didn't have anything to test. Nothing was there to test. And, and now all of their eggs are in the, the, the jewel basket of Sepang and Mandalika, which is a high-risk strategy, to say the least. But maybe um, they did that. Uh, maybe they agreed to that because it's easier for them to get to those two places from Japan, and they could easily fly in parts or or get, bring parts between the two events. Maybe that that would be it, logical. It's logical, but, but I don't, you know. But if those events are heavily rain affected, yeah, well, are, are they going to get any useful running? I mean, that's the risk that they're running, particularly at those two venues. So. So yeah, my, one of my things was yeah, well, any team screw up with the engine freeze, and who who can beat the coming Ducati Armada? Because that's really what we're talking about. And my, we're talking about what we're looking forward to. One of my fears for the season is that it becomes just a, a Ducati Cup kind of whitewash scenario, with none of the other. I don't think that's what's going to happen. But there are a lot of fast Ducatis with an awful lot of fast riders on them. That's the problem. So Honda, given where they are. Yamaha, given where they are, Suzuki are trying to recapture their mojo. Prilia, okay, we know, but and, and like you said, KTM need to recapture that form from from 2020. So there's a lot of people with a lot of work to do, uh, and Ducati looking ferociously dominant before the season's even started. So, all lots of things to look forward to. There is. I think that does it for the show, Rich. I think you so. wrap us all up and take us home. We will be back in a in a week or so. We've got some more ideas for things that we want to talk about in the off season. Whilst we have the chance to talk about non recent race related things, so again, listeners, if you have some ideas of things that you'd like to talk about, one of the things that we're going to touch on in one of the upcoming shows, Jim, is what are two or three of the things, and we'll we'll focus in on MotoGP, I think, rather than other race series and possibly the big bike class in, in particular, what are, let's go with three and a couple of reserve things, things that we would like to see changed in MotoGP. That could be technical, that could be sporting, could be coverage, anything. Open book, kind of go for it. So perhaps we'll try and do that next week. Fair enough. We'll get to that. As I mentioned earlier on, we'll perhaps have a little look at Moto3 as as the breeding ground for the future big bike champions. Let's have a look at who went where, who did what. I can make a list on that. So we've got some ideas, but listeners, yeah, if you've got some ideas and some comments, please check them in. We are always all ears. You can reach us at motopod at motopodcast.com. That goes to all of the hosts, but Jim and I certainly will react to anything that comes in. And without anything else, Jim, I think we're pretty much wrapped up. I think so. So keep safe, keep healthy. If you're brave enough, certainly in Western Europe to be riding at the moment, to go easy out there. It's pretty cold and wet and slippery, but other than that, thanks for listening and we'll look forward to talking to you in the next week or so. That's it, everyone. Cheers.